Uh, my wife, Abby, is an uh, emergency room nurse, and uh, she, we went on a hike uh, yesterday, um, couple, actually a couple days ago, and she shared a story that happened a little while ago in, uh, in the emergency room. She's on a break and kind of in the break room, and uh, for emergency room nurses, those are kind of few and far between, and so um, to have a break and be able to sit and talk with coworkers, and she relayed a conversation that, that, that she had, and the conversation ended up about, about marriage, and uh, Coworkers were all talking about marriage, and um, as you know, she's built relationship, and they know each other. They know that she's, they know you know who's been married and how long. And and uh, for her, we just hit uh, this past August, so a little over a month ago, uh, Abby and I hit our our twenty second wedding anniversary. I'm sorry, we've been married twenty two years. Thank you, thank you. That's, that's like a huge, I mean, maybe for normal people, that's, that's not a big accomplishment. For us, that's a huge accomplishment. We made it 22. We're still going. We're more in love, right? We're more in love today than we were before. Yeah, we're more in love today as we were before. Like, um, we need to be clapped for. Um, so uh, 22 years uh, we've been married. Other, others in the conversation in the break room there had been married a different number of years. And, and so kind of went around and, you know, what, what works for you? What works for you? It gets to her. And how did you guys make it 22 years? And she gave, you know, this really beautiful answer that I, I got to hear her share on our hike the other day. And, and, and she shares with her coworkers and then, and then includes in that, um, well, yeah, and, and uh, Tim's job kind of helps as well. And well, well, why is that? And they said, well, well he's a pastor. Okay, well, how does that factor in? Well, if, if uh, we were to get divorced, um, then he would be unemployed. <laughs> okay, that part wasn't supposed to be funny. That was, um, there, have, there have been times where that has helped. Hey, we're in the middle of a hard season, a middle of an intense argument, and uh, if I just pack up and move out right now, I got to find a new job. That would be... Well, so for many of us, maybe not all of you right now, but for many of us, that, that makes sense. Like, you know, to, to be a, a spiritual leader, to be a pastor in the context of a community that's centered on Jesus, your personal life matters. <laughs> your character matters. How you live matters. How your family function matters because it, it, it's just part of being a leader and a pastor. And scripture guides us to that and tells us that. And that's a, that's a really good thing. As Abby shared that with her coworkers, they kind of all looked at her and went, that's so unfair. That doesn't make sense. Why, why should that even be, you know, he should be able to, that's fine. If you, if, you know, if your husband wants to get divorced, he should be still able to work and do that. Like that's as if that somehow was oppressive or, or negative or something like that. And one person in the conversation chimed in and said, no, 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 pastors need to be above reproach, which is a little bit like, oh, you're, you've got a, maybe a church background or you're familiar with the Bible maybe or something like that. But for the most part, those in the conversation were just kind of, it was a foreign concept that that would be how it is, that that would, that would be part of the, the reality of, of serving Jesus, of serving a church, of being a pastor. It was completely foreign to them. Not many of you in this room are married to pastors, but all of us in this room that are following Jesus at this time in history, in this particular city, in this kind of a culture, have had those similar experiences where you're realizing you're talking to a bunch of friends or acquaintances or coworkers or classmates or neighbors, and there's a completely different way of thinking that, that following Jesus and following and believing scripture is God's word and is worthy to, to live out into our practical day, everyday lives is, is just a foreign concept. It's a different way of living. It's, it doesn't fit in a lot of ways. And this is why Peter wrote this short letter of 105 verses, five chapters, 
And he wrote it to a, a, a group of people he calls exiles and scattered, meaning you don't fit in the, the times and the cultures and the cities in which you live. You, you feel like an outsider, even if you've been born there and lived there your whole life. You're scattered, meaning you've been placed there or planted by God in certain specific places at certain specific times around other people and in certain roles that this was all meant to be an intentional and God has his hand on it. Peter wrote to people to say, this is God working in and through you. And so as they needed to read this some 2,000 years ago, it fits for many of us today because we don't feel like we fit when we seek to follow Jesus, particularly in our city and our time. What we're going to read today is Peter reminding this is who you are and this is why you are who you are. But then he's going to say, and this is how to live. And there's a number of them in there, but we're going to look at one specifically. This is one kind of encouragement or exhortation, if I can say it even this way, this command of how to live where you are placed, where you are exiled and scattered to. For many of us, we feel that way in Portland right now. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, it says this. I'm going to read, I don't know, I think it's eight or, eight, eight or nine verses here, starting with verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, impartially live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors but with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect he was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for your sake through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Peter says a lot in there, and he reviews, like, this is, this is why. And, and he starts this whole section, as we read the first verse, and verse 13 starts with this word, we're therefore, which means that he's talked about something else, and he reviews it there. And he's basically saying, because Christ has done something, because Jesus was born and raised fully God, fully, and in, in our in our world, that the God of the universe came into our world and lived among us, fully God and fully man, was, was born and, 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 and grew, and at, at some 33 years old, was executed on the cross after having lived a sinless life, done nothing wrong, and still was executed publicly, killed, put to death, then buried in a grave, and three days later conquered the power of death and rose again. That that changes everything. And he says, looking back, that, that, that the grace offered through Christ covers anything in our past. So any, anything that we've done or been or thought that has been outside the design of God, that we would call that sin, that anything has happened, grace covers that. The grace for, for the present, for this day, for this moment, for this breath, that God's grace is present in us right now simply by the fact that we exist and that we're being sustained, that God sustains our life and world by his grace through Christ. The grace for today that we can live in the power of of the Holy Spirit, because Jesus' grace is extending to us today. But then he says, looking into the future, therefore, because that is true, therefore, the grace that is going to come in the future when Christ returns, live in this way, wherever you are, 
and, and we used a we used a term, a, a, the name of a city um, last week. If you if you were here, we talked about this idea of Babylon. And Babylon points to an Old Testament story of the people of God that were exiled, that were were captured by a foreign people, and some of them were taken back to their capital city, Babylon. And it was a city and a culture and a way of thinking and living that was completely opposed to God. And in that setting and in that city of Babylon, there were followers of God, the people of God who lived as light for God in that place. And there's so many parallels to our world today and to the one that Peter was writing to as well. And so Peter, at the end of his letter, even says, it's as if we're in Babylon. And we can say that today. It's as if we're in Babylon. And we're in Portland, Vancouver metro area, but in many ways, there's so much about our culture and city and world today that is opposed to what God is calling us to, that Babylon fits. And he says, as you're living in this city at your time, if you could say Babylon, if you would, you're invited to be a, a light for God. We looked at last week and we said how, how Peter describes us as, as temples, that we're, that we're temples, that if you're a follower of Jesus, you, you're a temple. And w- what that means is that the God is no longer present only in a temple in a building somewhere, like the Jerusalem that was in, uh, the temple that was in Jerusalem. He's not limited to that, that he's present with each of us wherever we go. And so we take God's presence with us. And Peter's beginning to say, and this is how so therefore, knowing all of that, this is how. And he says in ver- this in verse, in verse 13, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope. And here's the first command or exhortation or imperative, whatever helps you to hear that. But that's a, that's a something to do. Do this, set your hope. That phrase right there is a go and do this. Hope is not something that we just feel. It is that, but it's so much more than that. Hope is not something that we just trip into or that we fall into or that just happens to us. Hope is a conscious decision, a conscious choice of the mind, a way of orienting ourselves in a certain way that we hope. And so we can actually be told to hope. So if you're a follower of Jesus, part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and it's the first thing that Peter calls us to, and so in that sense, it's, it's meant to be kind of comprehensive of the life of following Christ, is that we're people of hope that we are people that have a hope, not just in the present, but on into the future. Simple definition of hope is just a confident expectation of good. Confident expectation of good, that there's reasons behind it, we can be confident about it, that some good is gonna happen. And the good that that we as followers of Christ have is that, that Jesus is alive and real and returning. And that what he's seeking to do in and through us now is to bring more of his kingdom into this world now, knowing that there will be a full reign of him as king on into the future. That's a particular belief system. That's a t- the particular story that we choose to place ourselves in and to join and to be a part of. And when we do that, it changes how we interact with ourselves, others, and the world. It changes how we, how we find our own identity of who we really are. That rather, and before anything else, that we identify ourselves as followers of Jesus. That we look at other people as created and valuable because God created them. We look at what's happening in the world through a lens that says this is who God is and what he wants and what he's trying to do and where so much of our world is not in line with him. Set your hope means that we see and think of the world in a certain way. I want to read a quote to you, and it's, it's from a, um, it's one of the books that we're using for this series. It's a, it's a commentary. It's, a, it's an academic guy, and, and it, it, it might sound a little, um, little heady for Sunday morning. It's really important, and he captures it so well. 
His name is Douglas Herring. And he wrote a book on First Peter. Listen to this. Messianic hope. Messianic, if you're like, wait, well, what's going on here? It's another name for Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. So it's like Jesus' hope. Jesus' hope is rooted in the comprehensive alteration of reality already brought through crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Christ Jesus, of Jesus Christ. The crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, that story, the good news, the gospel, because that's true, it changes everything. It's the pivot point in all of history. I love how he says this, a comprehensive alteration of reality. For those of us that are following Jesus, reality changed when God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, brought our souls to life again by believing in Jesus. When we believe in Jesus, reality changes. We all of a sudden find ourselves in a brand new story, and it changes where we're headed and how we're living now. Comprehensive alteration of reality. Now, what Peter's calling us to here is to not take that for granted and to, and to focus intently on it and to keep it always in front of us and to never let it drift away. And that takes intentionality. And why it's particularly important for the people that Peter is writing to and particularly important for me and you that live in this time, in this age, in this culture, and in this city is because there are so many things around us that are pulling us in another direction. And so when he says, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed and is coming, he says a phrase right before it. And the phrase right before it is, Set your minds alert and fully sober. And what he's saying is, it matters what you think about. That your minds would be alert is actually this, it's this other phrase, and it, it has the same idea of, of rolling up your sleeves. Of like when you're getting to work on a project, you see a project that needs to get done, um, or maybe you've been assigned a project that you need, needs to get done, or some kind of responsibility, and, and you step up to it, and you've got you've to roll your sleeves up in order to do it, or you would be wise to. It would be helpful. You would not get your clothes dirty if you roll your sleeves up. There's another phrase that I don't think any of us use um, that this pointed to in its original language, but it was the, it was the phrase, uh, gird up your loins. <laughs> oh, you do use that. Okay, so, so you get, you're familiar with it, gird up your loins. I, I didn't want to search that and, and learn more about that. I just was going to go based on what I think it means. Um, but the idea that it does, it's the same as rolling up your sleeves. And, and for them, 2,000 years ago, um, and we see this in cultures today, uh, particularly in the um, uh, Middle East, is that their attire was, was just long. Both men and women wore, wore long um, outer garments uh, on, a, on a regular daily basis. It was just everything, they, a normal thing that everyone wore. And so if they were going to work, they would have to change what they were wearing. If they were going to get to work in the fields, or if they needed to move quickly, before they started moving quickly, or if they needed to run, before they ran, they would we'd gather up their long, their long uh, outer dress and, and put it in their belt or tie it up in some way. And then they would run. They had pants, kind of pajama things underneath. And then they could move quickly. They could work in the fields, or they could, or they could walk quickly, or they, or they could run. But they couldn't do any of that well until they pulled it up. So they'd have to actually stop and think about it. I've got I to pull up my outer garment, tie it up, and then I can get to what I'm doing. The idea for us is that if, if we're going to set our hope on Jesus, that's not something that just comes from an emotional response primarily to who Jesus is or an emotional response to, to say, say, music or the way that somebody treats us. And those things are all good and part of it. 
But what Peter is saying here is if you're in Babylon, if you're in a place where there's a lot of opposition, where there's not a lot of help, there's not a lot of voices around you saying, hey, continue to follow Jesus and continue to believe in him. If you're in that kind of a place, what you need to do is you need to have minds that are alert and fully sober. And then once you do that, that's a preparatory stage. And then you can set your hope on Jesus. Your mind needs to be fully engaged in the process. It needs to be prepared. There's a step. There's an intentional, specific, self-conscious step to take to have hope in Jesus, that your minds are aware and engaged. And how does that look? How do we do that? Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5 comes to mind, where Paul writes, take every thought captive. Oh man, I haven't been doing that. Take every thought captive. Is, is, that, even a, is that even something that we assume is a good thing? Have you heard that before? To take every thought captive, to be fully aware of what's going on in your mind, to not just let it go wherever it goes. And that doesn't mean not to dream and imagine and explore. It doesn't mean not to to doubt or be skeptical even or have questions. It doesn't mean that. It means that, that this is a gift. This is part of the way that God's designed you is to have this capacity to think and to think deeply and well and to explore and to dream and to ask questions. And that is all good but it's part of who we are. And to be good stewards and to be responsible with the minds that God has given us is that we're fully aware and taking every thought captive, that we're thinking through what we're thinking through, that we don't just assume that whatever we're participating in or whatever we're listening to or whatever we're reading or whatever we're watching is okay, but to filter that and to guard that and to take care of that, to tend to that, a buddy of mine used recently, he said, to curate it. I'm going to curate what's coming in and out of my mind. Now take care with it. The first thing is, is that, as it takes Paul's words, to take every thought captive. The second thing is this, is that, that this, this is God's word to us. And if we're going to set our hope on Jesus, we actually have to know what that comprehensive alteration of reality is. We have to actually have a vision for who Jesus is. We, we have to have an, an informed and, and detailed and laid out understanding of who Jesus is and ones that gets fuller and fuller and deeper and deeper. And can I even say this? More and more complex. If you're in a relationship with somebody over a longer period of time, I've learned this by personal experience, things get more complex, not more simple. And that's a good thing. When you get to know somebody more and deeper, you understand more of who they are and more of who you are and how you interact and how that all goes and what can go better and what can go worse a deeper appreciation for who they are. The same is true of Jesus. I had a friend say this week, quoting a, um, a U2 song, um, Moment of Surrender. And he quoted and he says, uh, I wonder if, if the author of the song, assuming it was Bono, was thinking of Jesus when he said the line, wrote the line, vision above visibility. Of what's visible and what we all see and interact with but a vision that supersedes that and goes above that, that's overarching. Again, those words, a comprehensive alteration of reality, a grand story that we all find ourselves in, the good news, that there's a vision of who Jesus is that we get from Scripture, an understanding who God the Father is, an understanding of reality and how this is all in God's sight and none of it is outside of it, that we're reading God's Word and that we're in it, 
If we're going to have minds that are alert and set our hope on Jesus, Scripture has to be a part of that. And for some of us, we open up the Bible, and it's wonderful. And it helps us wake up in the morning, or it helps us close down at the end of the day, or it, it helps us get through a break at work, or whenever we read it throughout the day, we engage in it, and we hear from Jesus on a regular, we find ourselves encouraged and emboldened, and, and it's a good thing. And then there's others of us that, man, I don't remember the last time I read, read Scripture. Or when I did, I, I fell asleep. Is that okay? Can I even admit that? It's difficult. I don't understand how to pronounce a lot of the things. The stories don't make sense. There's things in there that are scary. There's things in there that I didn't understand. There's things I thought that were going to be in there that weren't in there, and I'm really disappointed. I mean, it could be any number of things, but reading scriptures is difficult and hard for some of us. And for some of us, it's not necessarily difficult. We're just lazy and undisciplined. And if we're going to set our hope on Jesus, we've got to, we've got to get our minds set and ready, and that is going to involve meeting Jesus and hearing from God through scripture. You can join us. We've done this reading plan for this last year. We started it in February. We're coming, I don't know what, Mike, that's through middle of eighth and ninth month or something now. Um, you can join that. There's a bookmark available in the lobby somewhere. You can get on our email and there's daily reading. Here's what we're reading together. To be joined in reading with a community of people. That if I'm, if I'm not understanding this, maybe somebody else is understanding this. If I'm reading this and God is speaking to me, maybe God's speaking to a whole bunch of others of us. There's apps out there, and a bunch of us are reading on different apps, and you actually comment on it and see what somebody else is reading, and that's helpful and encouraging. Helps hold us accountable. That you make a plan and you set aside a time to regularly engage with the Bible. And what that does is it helps our minds be alert and informs the way that we think and then we see the world. A third thing to do, if we're to take everything thought captive, we're to be in Scripture on a regular basis, a third thing to do is to, is to actually begin to filter and to be aware of what's coming in. If our minds are to be alert so that we can set our hope on Jesus, we've, we've got to be aware of what's actually influencing our minds and what's, what's coming into our minds. And so much comes in. And we know this. There's a, for some of you, this is a world that you, you've only seen on the screen, but there was a time when screens were not readily available. Um, that everyone didn't have a, a lighted rectangle in their hand all the time. And somehow humanity moved forward and was able to grow and build things. But um, we got to this point where we have it all. We've all got a screen in front of us. And there's, a, there's a, the way that the world is now is that media of all different forms is readily available throughout the day, every waking hour, and then on through the sleeping ones as well. It's just always inundating us with many, many messages and ideas and ways of thinking and influencing us. And Peter, a really long time ago, said to have minds that are alert, which means, and he didn't know he was writing at the time, that we're taking care to be aware of what kind of messages are coming through our screens into us, into our minds. A book that came out a couple of weeks ago is called Faith for Exiles, and it's uh, produced by, uh, written by a guy that's, um, leads an, an organization called Barna, which is a, a Christian organization that, that surveys uh, primarily the United States on, on faith issues and then reports on it through, through books, and they're really helpful and give a, uh, a really accurate picture uh, of where we're at as a country right now. And unlike previous books, this book, Faith for Exiles, talks about uh, young adults, 18 to 29, who are choosing to follow Jesus in our nation today. When so many are walking away, what is it that the ones that are following Jesus are continuing to do so calling them resilient disciples. 
What is it that they're doing? What, are the, what do their lives look like? What are their habits? And they report on that. And one of the things they say in the, the start uh, of this book is talking about the influence of screens. And they use this phrase, screens, disciple. Screens, disciple. Screens direct us and we find ourselves following their influence in our life. That's, that's what it means. But listen to this, this quote. Through screens, ubiquitous presence, Babylon's pride, power, prestige, and pleasure colonize our minds and hearts. Our hearts and minds. Listen to that again. Through screens, ubiquitous presence, Babylon's, and again, another Another way of thinking, another culture, referring to Babylon again. Babylon's power, pride, prestige, pleasure, and pleasure colonize our hearts and minds. And he goes on to describe how, just how much influence there is through that. Um, one statistic they did said, uh, this was for 15 to 23-year-olds, say uh, that they're self-acknowledged, you know, say how much do you, do you watch or engage with digital media in a given day? They said about seven and a half hours, 15 to uh, per day, 15 to 23-year-olds. I mean, that, that's, that's a lot. <laughs> that's significant. Um, some of us that are parents are feeling right now, or we're feeling either really prideful or really guilty based on that 7.5, like we're doing better or worse than that, or realizing, oh, my kid just spent half the day yesterday on a screen, or, well, I've limited mine to exactly eight and a half minutes per day, and I don't let them more than that. And, you know, there's all different ways. But th- the reality is, is that's a major influence. And to have minds that are alert means that we're actually tending to that, that we're filtering that, that we're aware of what's coming in. And for some of us, what we need to say is, is oh, that's even a thing that we could be influenced by that is to acknowledge that. And others, it's to go to the next step further and go, what's, what's actually going to be good for me? What's going to be good for me and help me and direct me and guide me? Now, this is not to say entertainment is bad. Entertainment is fine to, to check out. You know, I'll, I'll tell you mine right now. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm intentionally um, watching through uh, friends again. No, you don't need to clap. You don't need to clap. It's, you know, I'm just thank you for not booing. Um, uh, I, for, for me, I, it, um, if you don't know what friends are, uh, I don't, just don't tell me because I'll feel extra old today. I said I was married 22 years, so I've already kind of dated myself a little bit, but when I was in college, one of our, our, our practices was to get together on Thursday nights in a, in a home, and we all crammed into the same living room and watched friends, and I'm going back and watching that now. Now, I, I'm, Depending on the day, I'm limiting that or letting myself watch a little more, but I'm aware of how much I'm watching. I'm not just using it as time to escape this world. A break is fine. Being entertained is fine. But are we being aware of how much we're taking in and how it's shaping our mind? For those of us that are parents, how are we approaching that influence in our children's lives? How much are we letting them be exposed to and watch? Do we know what they're being exposed to and what they're watching? To have minds that are alert that allow us to be able to set our hope on Jesus, we've got to filter that and watch that. I had a friend that said he was, that's where he got the word curate from. He said he was curating the media that was coming in and he was watching what he was, had on his, coming in through his, uh, his watch, his phone, his, his computer screen and his television screen, that he was limiting that to a particular amount of time each day. That was a step forward for him in, in reducing that because he was aware of the influence and impact it was having on his life. It's a sense of decluttering from other messages and limiting it and putting it in its place so that we can have minds that are actually alert and fertile and ready to be framed by and formed by God's word so that in a world that is largely opposed 
to Jesus, we can have a clear hope in the person and work of Jesus Christ day in and day out. I want to read you a story of what, not a story, but I want to read you an example of of what that looks like um, in a friend of mine right now. Um, And it's somebody many of you know. Um, Connor Durr is our uh, pastor of of kids and students uh, right now. Um, He's in his late 20s. Uh, He's been married about four years. He's been part of our church, I don't know, six or seven years. Came as a college student. Um, His uh, his mom was diagnosed with cancer uh, not too many months ago. Um, and this past uh, Friday, she passed away. It happened fast, happened suddenly. Um, Connor, along with his two brothers, his wife, Chloe, um, and his, his dad, and his mom's, I think both parents and sibling, were all able to be in the, in the hospital room when she passed away. Um, very, very difficult. Very hard. Um, he, Chloe shared the news with us, um, and then Connor texted, I don't know, 12 or 18 hours later, at a, after he had some, <laughs> I don't know how you digest that, but time to digest that, and eventually reached out and emailed our, our staff team. He wrote a long email. It was really good to hear from him, as difficult as it was. I want to read to you uh, part of what he wrote. It hurts and continues to hurt so bad. But I am continually reminded and convinced of Jesus' closeness. Difficult circumstance, and yet he's, he's able to think and know that Jesus is near, even in this pain. The words I read in 2 Timothy today, and here's the verse that he read, quote, Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. End quote. These are Connor's words. I know whom I have believed, whom my mom believed, and now knows more fully than ever. This is one of the most painful and difficult things that Connor's ever experienced. And yet he's able to write with confidence and with hope that he knows Jesus is near and that he's not ashamed for putting his trust in Jesus and his mom isn't ashamed for putting her trust in Jesus. And even in the midst of this circumstance and this pain can say, I know my mom is with Jesus now and knows him more fully than I even know him now. It's so good to be able to brag on Connor and say, there's a young man who has set his mind alert and put his mind and his hope focused on Jesus. And so then when circumstances and experiences around his life don't go the way that we want, that even in the midst of that, he can say, yes, my hope is on Jesus. I want to invite you to do this. Would you you close your eyes with me? We're going to come to these tables that are in front of us. And these tables that are in front of us are a reminder of this comprehensive alteration of reality, to use Herring's phrase again, but they tell the story of Jesus' sacrifice for us. They tell the story of, of our hope. As we're a people, as we read last week, that are living stones, a holy priesthood, a people with a purpose, that this is our story. And so we're all, all of us who believe in Jesus, 
and put our faith in Jesus and are invited to come to these tables and to be reminded that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, that Jesus is alive today, that we can put our hope in him. But to do so, would we all keep our minds alert, fully sober, under control, focused, preparing, to think deeply, to read his word regularly, to surrender our minds to him and allow him to guide and direct, that we would have hope in you, Jesus. And so as we sing and as we come to these tables, we're reminded of who you are, Jesus, what you've done, and what you've called us to.